All right. The time is 9.30. We can uh, start now. Thanks for being here this morning. We're in week six of a class that we're simply calling Thinking Biblically About 2020, and we've been addressing various issues whether it be the racial crisis, the election crisis, or even today the COVID crisis. Again, not bringing this up uh, for negative reasons or even to make an argument about responses, but to do two things. The first is that we would have a venue where we could process together, right? We could just not just brush something under the rug, but think about something, process together, talk about it with one another, that we would think through these things and maybe and hopefully do so in a way that reflects kind of a growing biblical awareness of how God wants us to think and live in the world. But, but, but I started the class now, what, six weeks ago, where I said one of the, one of, one of the most unhealthy traits in relationships, and we can, many, many of us can do this, is kind of brush things under the carpet, so things were said that were hurtful or not done that were hurtful, and then we never address and deal with those, and those things just fester. And those things, there probably isn't a marriage that doesn't deal with that at some level, or any other kind of friendship relationship, and then assumptions take over, misunderstandings happen, people are hurt. So we've got to find a way to try to deal with things and talk about things. And I think when we, what we've gone through as a country, what we've gone through as Christians in the evangelical tradition, even what we've just gone through in our own little local church should cause us to want to talk through these things, and ultimately, I think biblically about everything. I, I totally steal that little phrase, think biblically about everything from the university that I was at. It makes sense that the university would talk that way. When I was in California, that's what they tried to do. They said a Christian university should help Christians think biblically about everything, think biblically about science, think, uh, think biblically about political science, think biblically about literature and language and books and the human body and work uh, and, and theology, of course, right? That we should think biblically about everything. So the church can and should be a place where we think together. Uh, we've talked about the loss of the life of the mind, and we kind of punt those things to various kind of venues, and the church has a brain drain. It literally does. There's been a brain drain in the church over the last 50 years. People who, who are thinkers and readers or at least scholars don't feel like there's a home for them in the church. So they leave. They, they, they go to the academy. They teach in seminaries. And then the churches have, have, have kind of minimized the life of the mind. Uh, part of that is, is, is maybe because they feel like the, academic, the academy got too aloof. But the other part of that is psychology and therapy have kind of dominated what ministerial care looks like. And no longer is there a room for thinking deeply about God. Right? You bring up the Trinity, like, oh, the Trinity, I don't even know. But you want to talk about therapeutic, right, or relational topics. And there is a place that we talk about God. We talk about the hard things. doesn't mean it's a seminary classroom, but it does mean there's a place for good thinking in the life of the mind. And so this, the kind of this, our time in these weeks covers some of those things. I'll say again what I, what I covered early on, the, the two primary categories that I wanted to give to you. One is the category of a third world culture. And I, I really think that there's more work we need to do to think about being a third world culture. Again, not third world country. We're not talking about economic or military kind of development. We're talking third world culture, that there's no longer transcendent First world culture was pagan transcendent. Second world culture was monotheistic or Christian transcendent. And third world culture is there's no transcendent. There's no kind of sacred that we're aligning our lives to. So realistically, what we've gone through the last several years, you could even say for the last probably two generations, so arguably for most of your lifespans, you've been in this transition from second world to third world culture. So what you see developing then is anti-culture all over the place. Anything that, that kind of, that, that reeks of second world culture will be attacked. Common things like what is life? What does it mean to be life? Who decides what life is? Like we, have to go to a, we have to go to a court 
or a parent, rather than just a God, decides what is living. Like my sons and I took a road trip yesterday, driving, and there were several billboards that we saw about making an argument for babies in the womb, and I couldn't agree more. Here's the problem. That, That makes no sense to a third world culture. You argue all day. You're arguing a second world culture argument to a bunch of third world culture drivers. And it's just going to go right over the heads. It's got a heartbeat. It's living. Okay, th- that, that's not, th- they're just not going to hear that, even though that is totally true. Because there's a transcendent defines what life is. Not even its own mother gets to decide that. God does. But if we're letting mothers decide if a baby is alive or not, we're also now letting men and women, even boys and girls, decide what their gender is. Again, anti-culture. Third world culture turns into anti-culture. If God isn't the one dictating the terms, then we get to. We get to be like God. Guys, this is just like what Satan said in the garden. And really, that's what, that's what, all, that's what sin always is. So it, it's not to say that, that pagan culture or first world culture is any different. It's just simply to say it's always been about humanity wants to make a name for itself, Genesis 11. Humanity wants to be like God, Genesis 1 and 2. And you're just going to see that manifest itself in different ways. And so a helpful set of spectacles to put on and say, what's happening in our world is to say, right now that manifestation is the rejection of anything transcendent and anything sacred and anything, anything kind of d- divine command, and everything is internal anti-authority. And I, I, I'd like to tell you that, man, that thing stops at the, at the doorpost of a Christian home and, and the entryway of a Christian church. But sadly, third world culture values kind of implicitly come into our mix today. And I think we, you can, might even get a glimpse of it when things we talk about in even the church's response to COVID. Because there can be an anti-ness about even the way we think that we'll talk about in a few minutes. Even still, though, part of me wants to say, I'll pray in a second, then I'll ask the first question, but part of me wants me to say, when I think about the COVID situation in our church or other churches, most of what I feel is deep sadness. Because there literally were Christians who separated from their churches, who separated from and disagreed with their family members, you saw a massive amount of church swapping or church stopping all over the place. You see, you see hurt and pain. You see exhausted lay leaders, pastors, and elder boards and staffs. Like it's just, it was just devastating. So rather than kind of just talking about the theoretical level, I think it's just worth saying that this was a horrific season. And again, I, I personally know of one pastor who has resigned over all of this. And he was so broken about it, he, he would, couldn't even just talk. He was just done. Now, again, I don't know his situation. I don't know what his church went through. I don't know. All I know is that we're, we're in the Great Lakes District for the EFCA, the Forest Lakes District, which is basically Wisconsin. That's a different district than the EFCA. Their district leaders were running all over the place just trying to bring together conflict that wasn't just happening in the church in Wisconsin, churches in Wisconsin. It was happening in elder boards and staff. So there were, I mean, and we, we just didn't taste that. Like we, we had staff, we have vaccinated and unvaccinated staff. We have vaccinated and unvaccinated elders. We have very different opinions on these things. There, there, there was not fighting. And to me, that's the grace of God. We just didn't have that at the staff level. It doesn't mean we didn't have conversations that would kind of get a little amped up and opinions shared or feelings were said they were hurt, for sure. Pretty hard to talk about all this and, and, and for as often and as over a long period of time and not have that happen. But we, we, we didn't have to have the Great Lakes District bring in uh, some kind of mediation unit, like a SWAT team, because our elder board was actually getting into fistfights. And that was happening just across the border. I'm sure they have in other places. I only have the data sample of the EFCA. But all I'm saying is, if anything, when we want to talk about COVID, we don't need to just jump into something about masks or something about vaccines or something about social distance or something about I don't parent with Pritzker. You know, you know all the things. Right? We, we don't need to just, we can at least just start and say, this has been really hard. 
Some of our brothers and sisters have actually separated from us. Others have come because they've separated from other places. There's a whole lot of confusion and a ton of angst. And honestly, people are tired and they're wounded. And I just think it's just good to sit there for a bit. And just to say that that's kind of where the church is at, our church included, and to mourn over that a bit, lament that a bit. There's something biblical and healthy about that. But I'm going to pray that I'm going to ask you. i got three things I want to talk about in our time, but I just want to first have just a discuss, discussion with you. I want you to feel free to share uh, what that first question is, but let me just pray and open our time. Father, thanks for my brothers and sisters who, who are here, and even in this room, I know, I don't know all of them, but I know there are opinions in this room that would disagree with one another. And Lord, that just seems to be par for the course right now, but yet we are united as siblings in Christ. And so I pray that you would help us manage this discussion in a way that feels the weight of the complexity, that feels the burden of brokenness and sadness, and yet strives to think biblically and Christianly about what we've gone through and even what we're still somewhat in. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you tell me, let me throw the question out there. I'd love to hear from some of you. What did the COVID crisis reveal about Christians and the church? That's a broad question, so you could take that a couple different ways. But what did the COVID crisis reveal about Christians and the church? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. The comment was, if you didn't hear that, to let Christ sit on the throne and be king over my life. And just so you know, what we talked about earlier might be helpful here. One of the symptoms of a third world culture is that religion gets replaced by what? Politics. So, yes, in one sense, that should be and would be out there and not in here, but the reality is it infiltrates. And even if it's not amped up to a transcendent level, like someone who does not know God and has no hope, the reality is if you're at all engaging in third world culture news, and guess which would be third world culture news? Pretty much all of them. So if you're watching news on TV, you're probably watching some third world culture news, just different positions, with everything is amped up. And remember, it's just, it's apocalyptic. It's always apocalyptic. This is the end, end of America as we know it. This is it, right? All that, it's, it's amped up. It's, it's given a level of almost transcendent significance. The moment you hear that amping up, and there, there could be those moments. I, I mean, there, at one point Rome fell and there was a pretty amped up, this could be end of Rome. Fair enough, it was. Right? You could get to those moments where you talk about those things, but the reality is when you have 50 years of that, you literally have 50 years of the same talks with the same amped up politics. How is that possible? They, they could literally use the same speech over and over again. It's because those things have been given a transcendent level that now become timeless. The reality is, is that right in the church, we felt or bore with us that tension over the amped up politics because we, if we're being honest, were catechized just as much by cable news as we were Jesus. And so if we've been catechized by cable news, we've probably been catechized a bit by a third world culture. And politics have been elevated. So, to get to that comment, how is Jesus and his kingship, right, able to mediate when I've got this amped up political sensibility regarding the crisis of the moment? Which, by the way, if it's cable news that run on profit, there will, be, there will always be a crisis. There will be a crisis in the 2022 election. There will be a crisis in the 2024 election. There will be a crisis in the 2026 election. There will be a crisis in the 2028 election. Your grandchildren will be having, this is the end of America as we know it. And Psalm 2, the Lord sits on his throne and laughs. But that's pretty hard to let Psalm 2 and not TV news be the one that catechizes my heart. That's just hard to do. Right? So one, one aspect is it is hard to say, Christ, you are king, what do you want me to do? Jesus, do you wear a mask or not? 
Boy, that would not be nice. If Jesus like, no way, I don't let Pritzker parent, but there we go, right? He said it. Jesus, what are your thoughts on the vaccine? We don't have anything close to an answer from that from God's Word. What we have is a whole lot of things, judgments that kind of do circles around it, but nothing that it directs it specifically, and then you can therefore see why we, we would disagree on these things, and rightly so. Like, there should be room for disagreement on these things because the Bible doesn't address them specifically, but that's just hard to know. It's hard to know how to do that. Other, other thoughts. What did the COVID crisis reveal about Christians in the church? Yeah, so, so Melody is saying, she argues we've been potentially so culturized that we, we have claimed a right to have our say arguably without considering or listening to what other people would have to say. And I'll talk about that as one of, one of kind of my concerns in a little bit about how we, we as Christians, not just we as Hope Church, but we as Christians have responded to this, is the language of rights has gotten very strong. Very strong. And now, I'm not trying to make an argument about American democracy and the argument of rights or the Constitution. I mean, Coach Teacher Ott is here, and he would be the one to do that before I would. I'm just trying to say, here's a little plug. If in a third world culture, the transcendent has less authority and more authority is given to me, don't be, you know, be, be careful not to miss how all of a sudden personal rights all of a sudden take a bigger role. They're going to take a bigger role because there's less of a command by the king and more of an individual freedom and reign that actually can smack real strongly of something like a third world culture, if we're not careful. Again, that isn't to say we should, we should go back under the Queen of England. That is just simply to say it is a fine line between some kind of liberal democracy and a kind of right and freedom that really smacks of third world culture. So the same right and freedom you would be totally against of a woman who's pregnant with a baby. You would not be against with a man on a plane with a mask. What's the difference? When do we decide which rights are actual rights and which rights are not rights? How are those things determined? But the, sa the same vitriol can come up with those kind of things. It is difficult to know that. That's what I'm saying. This isn't something where we're like, oh, here's the answer. I, we can't even say, here's the line. I, I, I can't even draw that for us. It's impossible. My doctoral supervisor freaked me out, by the way, when I got to St. Andrews. He's like, let me explain a doctoral dissertation. You're basically writing on a topic that you have no resource to help you with. I'm like, what? He's like, well, you're, he says, people have written on, picture a circle. He, he kind of drew on a board. People have written around all the, on all these things around your topic, but your topic has never been explicitly addressed. So the reason it qualifies as a doctoral dissertation is because you're writing on something that no one has addressed before. So you're having to use all these point of references that can be connected but are not explicitly dealing with it, and you've got to compile all those and draw some kind of conclusion. He says, that's why it's such hard work. You've got three years. The library's over there. Get at it. And I kind of left his office thinking, I don't know what I'm... Because it's, like it's not like in seminary or college where they're like, Explain the doctrine of Christ. And what did I do? I go to the library and there's like shelves of books written on, guess what? The doctrine of Christ. And I could just be reading with all these other people, dictionary articles, and everybody would written on that. And then I just got to kind of collate and assimilate that information. And then I kind of use all that to give an answer that's already been answered by somebody else. A doctoral dissertation is worth its weight simply because nobody's addressed that topic before. And that's your job. And it's pass or fail. They call it viva, like the old Roman gladiatorial games. Do you live or die? Did you answer it well and sufficiently or not? Live. Thank you. Die. No, thank you. But we're dealing with that kind of level of complexity. It's actually not that simple. If it was that simple, there would be, there'd just be tons of things written on this. There'd be numerous volumes. There'd be clear out, here's the clear arguments. Agree with them or disagree with them. But it, it's not that something's wrestled with that. What is the Christian response to the vaccine and the mask and social distancing and public schools and restaurants? Okay, you've got uh, about three weeks in March of 2020 to figure that out. Go, right? I mean, they're just welcome to chaos. 
Picture me walking out of my supervisor's office late summer of 2002, walking toward the library saying, Lord, help me. I got three years to write on one little topic. How many did we have? Where are we at now? What resources are even circling that? What does it mean to speak of rights? People talk about liberty. What does that mean? And freedom. What does that mean? Mandate. What does that mean? All those things are loaded categories, and we all immediately have a definition and kind of walk to it. And those are hard topics. They star. They require deep thought. My supervisor would demand I define all my terms. I wish we could have done that in this topic here. Define rights. Well, I'm not wearing a mask in church. Okay. It's my right, my freedom. Okay. Define right. Define freedom. Define liberty. Oh, by the way, define it not just as an American, but as a Christian. And put the two together well. And turn in 10,000 words as due by Friday. And there better be a title page. And make sure the double space. I'm just saying that these are complex topics that grad students would have to work on. And immediately, everybody in regards to their local schools, their place of work, the use of airplanes, public gatherings in church, everything. We were jumping on all these topics. And you got all these different conversation pundits and, and talkers and talking heads. And it just is chaos. And younger children won't talk to their parents. And a Christian who never even mentioned that they disagreed just ghosts the church, a phrase I've learned over COVID. They just disappear. They're gone. Right out the back door. You never knew they were gone. They just left because they were offended with mask policy. What were they offended about? I don't even know. Their rights? What about my right as your brother? Or my right as your pastor? Or the rest of your siblings' rights? Do they have rights too? Like, where do those rights intersect? You see how complex it gets? Like, how do you define the terms even of what we're talking about? And before that even happened, it's grenades went off. Other things that you think about, just as you think about what did the COVID crisis reveal about Christians in the church? Yeah, Brad. It does. It hurts. And, and I mean, I don't know if this is too strong to say or fair to say. If you, if you couldn't hear, Brad was saying that, you know, people, they're supposed to be this, what, what text was that? Was that Corinthians? Yeah, but what about the one Lord, one faith, one baptism? That was Corinthians, wasn't it? But, but, but anyway, he talks about one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He said there should be this unity that binds us together, and yet we could disagree on other things. But actually, that proved not to be true in this. And, and I, I don't mean just our church. Please hear that. I mean literally in the church. I, I met with a group of pastors uh, recently. They asked me to talk about this third world cult. I basically gave them the handout, some of the handouts I gave you. And they just sat around the room, and they were just kind of quiet for a few minutes. And they were like, we just all went, we just all went through this. And basically, all of their churches, if they were anti-mask, anti-vax, guess what kind of people they got? Anti-mask, anti-vax. If they were pro-mask, pro-vax, guess what kind of people that they drew? The pro. Right? So, no, none of this is a surprise. It had nothing to do whether they're Baptist or Presbyterian. <laughs> nothing to do with their covenant or dispensational. Nothing to do with like kids' ministry or uh, you know, good small. I mean, nothing to do with doctrinal stuff at all. It was completely based upon political response, which means orthodoxy in the last year and a half has not been theological. It's been political. And if you're outside the bounds politically based upon the perception of some individual or some family or whatever, then they would consider your church anathema. They wouldn't want to participate. Or they would. They feel like they couldn't participate in their own church. And every single pastor around that circle to whom I was talking, that was about two, three weeks ago now, they all tasted that. It wasn't just like, well, yeah, that's your church, but mine, no, we'd never even had an issue. Nobody even questioned anything. There was no disagreement whatsoever. I never even got a, I never even got a mean look. They all dealt with that in every church, at different denominations, all throughout the greater Rockford area. Exact same response. The risk is, here's my fear to what Brad's point is, has the kingdom of man taken more 
prominence in our thinking than the kingdom of God. Like If that were the case, that the kingdoms of man took higher priority than the kingdom of God, then that is really scary to me. There's got to be a way for us to disagree about the kingdoms of man and still agree on the kingdom of God and to worship together. There's got to be a way. Brad, are you going to follow up on that? Oh, yeah. Well, and, 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 I, and, I, and I can't even fathom what this looked like in the outside world. Here, here, here's one closer to home for me. My own teenage children. This is the kind of comment I'll get all the time. Dad, um, you okay, Dad? You okay, Dad? People complaining, Dad? Dad, you okay, Dad? Hey, hey, we're, we're good, man. Hey, we're good. Don't lie to me, Dad. This is what I hear. Don't lie to me, Dad. You okay, Dad? No, no, we're, it's okay, man. Like, you know, I mean, just like trying to shield kids in your own home from, imagine if moms and dads are talking about that all the time. Can you believe they they asked us, they recommended masks, and my right is, you see what I'm saying? Am I, I'm not saying you could be totally disagreeing with masks. I'm just simply saying how it's, the whole thing is framed. I've got three kids that, are, that were watching all of this. They were watching exactly how I responded, and they were watching their, they were watching their Christian older brothers and sisters, adults, and how they responded to this. And I could see in my oldest son a bit of angst because he, he felt maybe I showed too much in my own fatigue. He felt some of the angst that I was dealing with, and I did everything I could not to mention a lick of it to him. But it's just hard to hide everything, isn't it? So obviously nothing was shared with him, but he could tell there was conflict. There's conflict. There's conflict. There's conflict. Masks, vaccines, masks, masks, social distancing, masks. And I'm worried about even some of our own Christians. New Christians in the faith, the younger generation. It's just hard. It's a, it's a complex season for sure. That's right. Well, and, and I'll talk about that in a minute. That, that is actually one of the symptoms of third world culture. It's called anti-authority. So again, that just feels like innate human rights and me making decisions, but there is a arguable connection between anti-authority and third world culture. In fact, it is argued by Mark Knoll. You guys know who Mark Knoll. Who was Mark Knoll, Mary Alice? That's right, a Christian historian who taught at the Wheaton College for a long time, then ended up replacing Marsden at Notre Dame, before retiring, he wrote a book called America's God, and he argues that America, by being the first nation that rejected a king, would have, been, would have viewed itself in many ways as making a secular move, right? Because it would have democratized rights in such a way that there was no, because king was not just a form of government in the ancient world, it was actually the way that God mediated, right? I mean, there's a mediation that God mediated that way, that Jesus, I mean, he still does. One day, there will be a king again, right? He would argue now, using, using like Taylor's language or Reef's language, you could almost read that book from a couple decades ago by Noel and say, I wonder if he would say that even America was the birthing of a one of the first third world cultures, right? Where there, it, everything was democratized in such a way. There was no king. And in many ways, the Brits, the Christian Brits, were frustrated with the new Americans because they saw rejection of king not as a different politics, but a different Christianity. Yeah, that's not something we think about a lot, but they viewed it as a rejection of God's sovereign running of the universe rather than just, well, that's just a different political philosophy of governance. Marsh, were you going to say something? That's a good word, yeah. And I think, I think many of us would resonate with that. I mean, thanks for that reflection. Look at number two real quick, and these are things we've gone over before, but I added a new category, right? I gave the fourfold fracturing of evangelicalism. Again, this is evangelicalism's response to a third world culture. It's actually caused a fracturing within churches. 
and within individual Christians so that you can see four different approaches. Now, which, what do you think the COVID response would be by number A versus number D or letter D? Do you think they would respond to COVID in the same way? You tell me. How would A respond to COVID and how would D respond to COVID? Anybody want to take a guess? Mr. Ott. Totally. Absolutely right. They would be promoting it. A, a D church would have vaccination station in the parking lot a Sunday in a month. They would have the masks there. They would have been the first to respond with social distancing. They would have been encouraging vaccinations from the stage all over the place. They would see this as if it were part and parcel of a great war that we're fighting, and it's for the good of humanity. My mother and father-in-law were born during World War II, tell the stories of their parents and others who, during the World War, you used food differently. T rubber tires were used differently. Like, you responded to the war in your own kitchens, garages, homes, because you were contributing to this greater good that yeah, maybe you didn't have to do it and probably some didn't, but you felt some kind of impetus to respond that way. Now picture a D church looking at the pandemic. Now an A church would feel quite the opposite. They would even use religious language. I remember all these pastors were, I had a couple pastors in the free church. This is in this, a group that I'm part of that's across the country, about religious exemptions for the vaccine. They were all kind of talking or sharing what kind of form they gave. And I, I was a couple, I wasn't even sure what that, I wasn't sure how you could get a religious exemption for a vaccine, to be honest with you. That was my first thought. You could give a personal, you could have a personal exemption, like your own conviction, but technically, if we as a church are giving a religious exemption, it would have to be something that is clearly diametrically opposed to Orthodox Christianity. But I'm not sure the vaccine does that. Please don't hear me. I'm not saying that you wouldn't have a right for a personal religious exemption, let alone a health religious exemption. You sure might. But I couldn't see how the vaccine violated something core to Christianity. So you would, you, you say, I, I'm, just saying, I'm just saying historically, religious exemption. Here's another example. Like, would we give, if there was another draft, is there a religious exemption for someone going to war? Now, there could be personally, the Anabaptist would have an exemption, but does the free church have an exemption to war? There are a couple pacifists that come to this church. They probably don't mention it very often. Most people would behold to what's called just war theory. And they would be all for going to war. There's numerous military vets that are part of, our, part of this church and part of our families sitting in this room right now that served in war. Yet there are many brothers and sisters across the world and even a few in this church right now that wouldn't even go to war if they were drafted. Now, does Orthodox Christianity help either side of that argument? No. Zero. Gives nothing. Is it wrong to go to war as a Christian? Absolutely not. Augustine himself held a just war theory. Is it wrong to say that I can never take a life, it must be the Lord? No, it not, isn't necessarily conflicting with any pure doctrine of Christianity. Remember that circle I told you about where the answer is in the middle? You're having to draw from a lot of different places for either the just war theory or the pacifist theory. Both of those can find housing in the church of God, and they have throughout the centuries. Meaning, if there's going to be a religious exemption, it would, by definition, have to directly conflict, directly conflict with a clear and undeniable doctrine of the Christian faith. You could make that case regarding abortion, I think, way easier than you could make that case regarding a vaccine or a mask. I'm not sure you could make that case with a mask. You could have personal preference. You could have personal health issues. You could have your own convictions personally, but I'm not sure you could wed that 
in some way to the Orthodox Christian faith. But again, that's the language that's been tossed around. We're numerous. I haven't, I think I've only gotten one or two people asking me about that. But I've got pastor friends that have 50 to 100 people asking them for religious exemption forms. And they're like, what, what would that even, what would qualify as that? Can I do that with taxes? I mean, could I? What if I believed in extremely small government? Is there a religious exemption form of taxes? I mean, I think there's enough parable, or, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's, that you'd actually have a hard time with that. So what counts as religious exemption? Well, that's where A and D would completely disagree. For A, that's the language they would often use. For D, they would use the opposite. And then really the B's and C's, probably the majority of evangelicals are sitting somewhere in the middle. Let me, let me end with this in number three. And, and I, I've said this for each of the crises and just a few comments on this. The COVID crisis in our country is a manifestation of a third world culture and the same crisis in the church is a manifestation of the fracturing evangelicalism. And here's some things. Number one, COVID's been politicized big time. Is it a health issue or a liberty issue? How do you think about it first? For, for, the, for the D church, this is a health crisis. For the A church, it's a liberty crisis. So the news you watch, how do they frame it? Health issue or liberty issue? A rights issue or a responsibilities issue? Like, what comes to mind first? Remember that... Remember that quote, the most important thought you ever think is the thought you first think when you hear the word God? Well, at least in the last 18 months, and certainly not the most important thought, what thought comes to mind first when you hear the word mask? Do you hear responsibility or do you hear rights? I mean, just be, just be an interesting test. I'm not, we're not going to take a poll or make you raise your hand. I'm just saying at least in a sense, have a blood test and find out what your numbers are. Second, masks have been politicized. Is it personal freedom or a love of neighbor? I mean, Marshall raises that. There's that dynamic. If it's personal freedom, I wouldn't even have thought of my neighbor, maybe. If it's love of neighbor, I would, might be doing something I don't even want to do. I personally hate wearing these things. So if you see me wearing these, it is not because I love to cover my mouth and nose and feel like I'm suffocating. You're not going to see me watching the Bears game today wearing one of these at home. Don't get near me, kids. I mean, no way. The moment I can take this off, I do. So is it a, is it a, is it a love of neighbor thing or is it a personal freedom? Again, even framing it that way is probably a false alternative. False binary. Uh, uh, here's the third. Rights and liberty have been politicized, right? So kind of like race... Is it individual or are there social? Like, is it collectivist or individualist? And our, in, our individualist culture has kind of leaned us in that individualistic way. We at least just need to know the cultural context. That's just the way. You add liberty, rights, freedom in an individualist culture, you have got a weightlifter on steroids. And that's, that's, that, that's been, we've been on, we have steroids added to rights, liberty, and freedom. And that might not be wrong. I'm, again, remember it's that circle, and the answer is actually drawing from all of those. There's no clear answer to this. There's no easy answer. But just realize what the bent is going to be. It, the bent in a third world culture is going to be individual freedom, individual rights, personal freedom, personal authority, and it's going to be much harder to have a love of neighbor or an authority outside of that speaking into it. Here are my concerns. One is the loss, arguably, of science. Can there be objectivity anymore? Maybe not pure objectivity, but is there? What, are there things called facts at all? Misinformation? Disinformation? These are, these are newer phrases. Fact check? Is there a collective truth anymore? What happens when you lose truth? Like, what happens when truth is gone? What happens when you don't know who you can trust? 
science is part of God's common grace, actually. It's a common grace gift. The very fact that my mom, I mentioned in first service, I'll mention in second if you weren't there, is currently diagnosed with cancer. The very fact that doctors can immediately do tests and speak to me and her about that is a fact of common grace. That, that is grace. Common grace. Not, common grace, see, creator, special grace as savior. It's a, it's a gift of the creator that God gave minds and abilities for us to think and reason and study. We, we kind of lost that. Can we ever even get that back? That's a concern. Especially, brothers and sisters, when you know who the most motivated scientists were in the history of the last 1,200, 1,500 years, they weren't the pagans. They were the Christians. Universities were started by Christians who were scientists because they knew that if we were going to rightly know and live in the world that the Creator made, we should be studying His creation. It was, sci- it was Christians who were the best and arguably the first scientists. Now when you hear the word science, it's either Darwin who swiped it from us or some kind of statistic or some kind. I mean, it, we've lost a love of science in the church. And I'm telling you, that is a novum. That's a new thing. We would be the first Christians in about 1,200 years to actually not have a high priority and trust in science. We'd be the first. Now, feel free to feel that way, but for 1,100 years, your brothers and sisters saw science as actually dutiful, responsive, worshiping the Creator. How about anti-intellectualism? That is a girl. There's a, there's a book called, uh, what's the title? It was written in 66. How do I remember that? But the word, uh, is it anti-intellectualism in America? I, I just, I've just been working through it recently. And he, in 1966, right? So I was negative nine when he wrote it. Uh, don't, don't say anything, Chuck. But uh, he, he wrote this book and he spoke about the growing anti-intellectualism. So he's going back to the 40s and 50s and looking at growing into, into anti-intellectualism, which means basically all of your lifetimes, there has been a decrease in the life of the mind. So if we see that in the church, guess what that matches? That matches actually the culture we live in. There's a book called The Death of Expertise, fascinating book, where everyone's an expert now. When there's no longer an expert, everyone's an expert. And, and part of that can almost be offensive. For me to get a PhD in theology, I had to pass examinations in Greek Hebrew, French, and German. I had to take major comprehensive exams, and I had to have eight years of post-college graduate school to do that. Now, I'm fine if somebody wants to talk theology and something, but there is, some, there is a slight difference between an actual expert in theology and someone who is not. Now, think about somebody who's a medical doctor. Think about somebody who's a political scientist. Think about somebody who is a sociologist or historian. There's the same kind of rigorous examination, qualification, and testing that they're required to do. And I'm guessing you would rather have, at least for my mom, her cancer doctor actually be a verifiable, tested, and qualified doctor than some guy who says, don't worry, I've got Google on my phone. But when you add anti-intellectualism culturally, and you let that simmer for 75 years, we got a real problem. Who can speak into masks anymore? Where do you even hear your theories on masks? From epidemiologists or Facebook posts? I'm just asking, this is where we've lost objectivity, we've lost truth, we don't even know what fact is anymore. And the third is anti-authority, third concern. By the way, anti-intellectualism and anti-authority, I think, are both symptoms of anti-culture. 
Anti-intellectualism would say, I don't need the Word of God anymore. I can give my own Word. I don't need an outside authority. I can get my own. Anti-authority is I don't have an authority over me. I can get my own. Now, we may never say that explicitly, but the worry is, is that anti-intellectualism and anti-authority are literally symptoms of a third world culture infiltrating our very being. We never, we, nobody ever was catechized. Your parents never said, I want you to be anti-intellectual and anti-authoritarian. Like, they never said that. But the way we engaged with any kind of authority any kind of intellectual thought was treated with such disdain that after a while, they just get eliminated. So here's what I would think. If we were really as Christians, and I'm hoping our Christian universities and professors are doing this because it's not something we can do in the church. That's why the parachurch organization, and I mean that not just like Youth for Christ or missionary organizations, but even universities, which are really parachurch organizations, I'm hoping that they're doing this kind of work. Here is what, in my view, as a theologian, I would think biblical thinking on COVID would require. Number one, a robust theory of common grace. You've got to have a theory of common grace. Number two, a robust theory of what it means to love your neighbor. Like we got to figure that out. Because we love that language in theory, but man, don't ever bring that up around COVID. And third, and maybe this is the most complex, a theology of public theory. Now, you're, you're reading that, you're, you're that like, I haven't taken U.S. history since I was at Guilford or something, right? Or that was me, maybe. Or I guess I took some in college. But yeah, that's not, we're not going to bring that up in the church. We're not going to cover those things. But that's ultimately the triangulation that is needed. A theory of political theory, biblically related public public policy, public theology, connected to a theology of what it means to love your neighbor, connected to a robust doctrine of common grace. Now, if you've worked through all those things, please let me know. And how those connect with masks and vaccines or not. But let me, uh, let me push back on our culture and say, if you have not wrestled with those three things, let alone triangulated them, feel the complexity when somebody says, I have a right not to wear a mask. They may. That's a, that's a position. It is. But they've also made a position about common grace. They've made a conclusion about what it means to love neighbor and how that manifests itself. And they've made a conclusion about political theory. And they may be right. They may be. But they may be wrong. They could easily just be as wrong if it was like, you have to mask. We require you to mask. That could be wrong too. That is a conclusion about political theory, a conclusion about common grace, and a conclusion about loving neighbor. They could, that could easily just be wrong. But feel the complexity of it. So let me hope that your children and mine, or your grandchildren, and maybe eventually mine, decide that they will be thinkers for the next hundred years that they will read and study Christianly like their forefathers, founded Oxford and Princeton and Cambridge and St. Andrews. They Harvard, Yale. Wasn't Yale the Presbyterian College, right? I mean, these were founded by Christian thinkers to raise up the next generation. And now those schools have been changed. And since 1880, between 1885 and 1935, guess what started? Wheaton College, Biola University, Moody, Trinity, Taylor, Gordon, Bethel. They've had to step up in the early 20th century as Christian think tanks to wrestle, to train young men and women to think biblically about everything. Oh, I don't want to lose that. I don't. I don't want to lose that. I, I want my three children to think about political theory Christianly. Now, to be fair, I mean, I might have a kid that's like, uh, the opposite of me and is like, Dad, I just want to fix engines. And I'll be like, where did you come from? And uh, I do not know you. But that's awesome because my car needs help. Or they, I could have a kid bar like me. It's like, what do I read now? Fair enough. But I don't have to, if I don't have to fix cars, they don't all have to read the books. But I'm hoping that out of our church comes common grace gifted people and special grace gifted people and great thinkers and beautiful mechanics 
gardeners and philosophers raising out of the church, wrestling with these hard questions, and then doing what? Helping us in these moments, not ghosting us or kind of just ignoring us, but gathering us around and saying, let's think about what it means to be Christian as a citizen. Let's think about language of rights and liberty, especially as a dual citizen of a kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Let's, what is common grace? Let's talk about science and how actually it is one of the greatest gifts of God in the world today. The fact that you have pacemakers in your body right now, or medicine helping your blood pressure, or glasses so that you can see and read, or surgeries done to you so that you can walk straight, is part of the gift of the father, like a parent who helps his little kid not to stumble, who lifts them up when they want to read something. That's just, it is the love of the father in common little things. That's what science is. I hope we don't lose that. So application, and the question I'll leave with you is, what should Christians in the church learn from the COVID crisis? Well, I hope, I hope a lot. I appreciate it. Some of your thoughts. I think there's a lot more for us to think with. I think, like several of you said, this gives us a different kind of gut feeling in engaging with people, good and bad. It hurts. There's lament and sadness, which is a good, natural, probably unavoidable response. It showed glaring weaknesses in our thinking and processing, topics that we need to wrestle with that maybe we can have. We could have growth hours or reading groups or thinking and studying on these things. Again, not everybody has to go to that. Not everybody should. In the ancient world, if they, they didn't even think of everybody being readers. That's more of a modern phenomenon. In the ancient world, as long as 10% of a community could read, they called it a reading community. Why 10%? Because if you had 10%, guess what? people could hear the word. So if we could have 10% of our church be car mechanics and electricians and plumbers, 10% farmers growing and caring for God's creation, 10% philosophers and political scientists, 10% serving as teachers or serving as police officers, firemen, military, assuming the pacifists wouldn't sign up for that, 10% serving in government, civil government, cultivating the city, caring for people in need. 10% working in hospitals and nurses and pharmacists. We'd, uh, we'd be doing pretty well. That's all we need. We just need the life of the mind and the thinking and the penitent heart. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this time we had. Be with us as we transition to corporate worship. For those that were not, were not here during the first hour, thank you for your goodness to us. Help us as your people deal with the complexities of 2020. Thank you for the gospel that's meaningful to us and helpful to us in so many ways. Be with us now as we leave, whether to go home after being together for a couple hours or we're preparing to worship and to fellowship in the second gathering of this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.